We're in Acts 13. And what we've been looking at so far is the conversion of Paul. We spent two weeks on the calling of Paul. Trying to understand what God is doing in his life. Number one, he's converted like no one else has ever been converted before. Number two, we find out that he's converted because when he was conceived in his mother's womb, the Lord set forward a purpose for him to specifically accomplish. And so all this time that he was going about attending school, having an incredible education, learning the ways of Jewish society, and also being a Roman citizen, God is also on the behind-the-scenes prowl to take him down and to bring new life into his life. Sent him on a mission for Christ to the Gentiles, to the king, to the Jews. What we're going to see the next two weeks are Paul's methods. It's an important moment that we need to get a taste for his ministry. What did it look like? How did it function? What were people hearing when Paul showed up to town? This week we're going to focus on his approach to Jews. And next week we're going to focus on his approach to Gentiles. Just some things to look at. Number one, in chapter 13, verse 1, notice that Paul was sent forward from a church. He belonged to the church in Antioch. Some would even day say he's a member there. I don't know if he went through any official membership classes, but uh, I'd like to think that he did, right? So there we go. He was one of many teachers in that church. We know he ministered there for a year. We know the Holy Spirit is the catalyst of which to send him out. We know that there was a lot of ministry already going on to prep the heart and the mind to be sent out by the Lord. So the first place they sailed to was Cyprus. And if you notice in verse 5, it says they started out in the synagogue of the Jews. Now, someone who's called to the Gentiles primarily, but yet he starts out in the synagogues. In fact, you see this all throughout Paul's ministry. If you're someone who likes to take notes and would like to take a, a look at this, let me give you some things real quick. In Damascus, in chapter 9, verse 20, he spoke in the synagogue. Today, what we're going to see, or sorry, what we're going to see right here, chapter 13, verse 5, he is on Cyprus, the island, and he speaks in the synagogue there. What we're going to look at is Antioch and Pisidia, or what's known as Pisidian Antioch. Well, that ends up being in chapter 13, verse 14. He then goes to Iconium in the synagogue, chapter 14, 1. Thessalonica, chapter 17, 1. Berea, chapter 17, 10. Corinth, chapter 18, 4. And Ephesus, both in chapters 18 and 19. Paul loved the synagogue. He loved coming there. And the question is, why? Why was it when he came upon a city, this was one of the first places that he went? Let me ask you this. If you're somebody who's commissioned by the Holy Spirit and you come into Portage for the first time, where are you going in order to share the gospel? The synagogue? Some of you chuckle because you know we don't have one. Where's the first place you would start your ministry? Where are you looking for the, the end? Anybody? Church. Are the churches here in such bad condition that they need to hear the gospel? Ooh, don't answer that one. Somebody else at another church might watch this. Where would you go? Walmart, maybe? You'd last just a little while there. That'd be fun. Then you'd be preaching outside, have an outside ministry. Where would you go? Why? Everybody at Pizza Ranch is already saved. Why would you go there? Joel's like, that's right. Maybe at work, but you're not from here. 
You're showing up. Where would you go? The friendly tavern. Because uh, people who drink beer are going to hell, right? Is that the reason why? No? No? Here's the reason why, because they probably be just rational enough to actually listen. I think that'd be good. I think we need a beer and Bible study evangelism ministry that goes down. You think I'm kidding, I'm not. Why does he go to the synagogues? Well, let's see what's going on. I think a lot, if we watch how Paul approaches a synagogue situation, I think the lights begin to come on about why he goes there. Now, here's the amazing thing. I had no idea that it's as late as it is. I might talk fast, and I'm sorry. I might keep you longer, and I'm not sorry. Okay? Here we go. Look at chapter 13. We're going to skip down there. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. You say, I don't know where any of those places are. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So John who was assisting them, who's also known as Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark in verse 5, he actually abandons them on their missionary journey. Cyprus was enough for him, and when they got back to the mainland, he skedaddled. He was gone. Okay? Now, if you wouldn't mind, PJ, could you please bring up the map back there that says uh, Pisidian Antioch, or Antioch Pisidia. I can't remember how I listed it on there. He was here at Cyprus. They were ministering in Paphos right here on the edge. Then he goes up here to Perga. Does everybody see Perga? Just follow the baby blue line up. And then follow the baby blue line up to Antioch. Now remember, Tarsus is over here where he was at. Barnabas came and got him and brought him over to Syrian Antioch, which is this little pink dot over here. But when they started their missionary journey to Cyprus, being sent out from Antioch after a year, they then decided to travel up in this direction. Now here's the reason why this was important is because Pisidia Antioch right there was considered in the very midst of everything that was going on in Asia Minor. Everything came through there. I mean, imagine some of the cities that you see here. Pergamum, Sardis, Ephesus. You'd be familiar with those three, Ephesus because of the book we're going to study, but the other two are also mentioned as the seven churches of Revelation. There are three of the seven churches you find in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. Everything was flying through. If you were on the mainland, you were going to be passing through this region of Pisidia, no problem. And Antioch was such a major city because of military presence and political prestige. They all flocked there and wanted to be there. Why not a good place to go introduce Jesus Christ to a place where everyone is? If it's a main central hub where people are going to gather, that's where you go. Would you do that? Don't answer out loud. Let your heart answer. Is that what you would do? Well, where's the place where there's the most people? Let's grab that first. Let's go there because as many people need to hear that they need a Savior and that a Savior's been provided, why not? Let's move on here. Verse 14, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, Saturday, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, here's what I love. Notice they're not boisterous. They show up at a place where people are already reading God's Word, and they decide to have a seat. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, any word of comfort or building up, it's the same word where we get the idea of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete. Paraclesis is the word here. I love it. He sends to them, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. 
Now you know, you can just picture me right now just buttering some bread looking at some people. This is great. Here's an important principle that this teaches us. If you're present in a situation, wait for God to open the door. Period. Sometimes we get so pressured about sharing the gospel with people that we freak ourselves out and don't do it. And God brought us there for a reason. We need to be sharing it. If you're trying to force open a door when God has it closed, you're working against his will. Don't do that. Wait for God to open the door. That's exactly what they did. Now here's the problem. Sometimes we treat the open door like we do in physical social situations. Have you ever been walking into a place and somebody goes to hold the door and you're like, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you. And you guys are having like this fake little cordial, I'm so polite argument that's going on without saying anybody. Don't act like we're so cool that we're letting other people go. You want to get in that place. That's why you came there. Sometimes we treat evangelism that way. No, Lord, after you, you open the door. Jesus opened the door for you. You're his messenger. Get in the building, right? You know what happens when we, oh, Lord, after you. Oh, I just, or you open this door, it's wide open. If you got anything to say, stand up and say it right now to everybody. But I don't know if you're really moving in this situation, God. You ever done that? You know what God does when that happens? Closes the door. Wide open opportunity. And then we wonder why it's so awkward when we're trying to force it in and doing what we ought to do because the conviction is set into the missed opportunity. Here's what I love about Paul and Barnabas. The door opens, they walk through it. It's a really good evangelism strategy. The Lord prepares it and opens the door. All they have to do is recognize it. Here's a good prayer for this week. Ready? Lord, open my eyes to the open door. Period. You watch. You will have tons of opportunity. Because the Lord is just waiting to lead you to people. If you're willing to go, he'll open the doors. I promise. They open. Let's walk through them and share the gospel with somebody. Might be your first time sharing Christ with somebody, leading them to the Lord. I promise you. Once that happens, there's nothing like it. It will absolutely obliterate anything else that you thought was a joyous surprise. Sharing the gospel. The Lord opens the door. Look what it says here. Verse 16. Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel, notice that's the first group he addresses there, who makes up the synagogue, and not only that, look what it says, you who fear God, listen. So here's what it means. You've got people who are authentic Jews by genetics and heritage, and you've got proselytes. You've got people who are Gentiles who have come in contact with Old Testament Judaism, and they've decided to devote themselves to the one true God, the creator of all things. And that's why they're attending synagogue, because they're faithful in their Judaism. This would be like Cornelius that we see in Acts chapter 10. He had reverence for God. He prayed all the time, led his family in giving alms to the local synagogue there. That's why Peter was brought about to use it, because he already had some understanding of who the Creator was. Now doors are starting to open for greater opportunity. He says here, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose the fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. I don't know if you just saw what happened. Paul has started with a history lesson. 
Everybody see that? Does everybody see that he just covered Genesis and Exodus in one verse? Wow, what a concise preacher. I know, how come you can't do that? Right? That's what you're asking. But think about what he says here. Look what he starts. Notice what he's grabbing on here. This God chose your fathers. Choosing is always to a task, function, mission, or ministry that needs to be accomplished. There's something that is placed before a person, and they've been chosen particularly to go do that. He is my chosen instruments to go to the Gentiles and the kings and the Jews. Why was Paul chosen? Look at it. Look how educated he is. Look how diverse he is. Look how breakable he became. It's because God loves using weak instruments. He loves it and he does it. He chose your fathers and something happened. They ended up in Egypt. Egypt was a great incubator for those people and they ended up becoming in the millions then. We've got Genesis and Exodus already taken care of in his story. Now watch what he says after that. Verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Good grief. You ever feel like that? You're like, good grief, this is my life verse. He put up with me in the wilderness. What is that, though? What has he just done? Notice at verse 17, Genesis, Exodus. Verse 18, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Everybody see that? So he's just covered four out of the first five books of the Bible. He's given you the, the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. Look where he moves on here. Verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. There's Joshua, the book of Joshua right there. Verse 20, after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, I'm going to hope you're going to get this one. What book did he just cover on that one? Judges. And Samuel, well, he's getting into it for just a second. He brings up Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges. Look what he says here, verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. There's your first Samuel reference. Look what happens next, verse 22. After he had removed him, now you want a good devotional verse for, for tomorrow morning? Study Saul and how God removed him and what he did to get removed by God. Good gravy. That'll send some tingles up your spine. That'll spice up your tea. Notice here, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Now notice that's Second Samuel. That's where we have the Davidic promise sitting. Now watch what Paul does here. He brings up the idea of the Jewish people being chosen. He deals with their history and how they came into ownership of the land because God gave it to them. He deals with the idea of royalty. Watch what Paul does. It says here, and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. I've removed Saul. Now notice that this statement about David kind of gives you the reason as to why Saul got removed. Because he wouldn't do God's will and he didn't have a heart for God. Was he a believer? Absolutely. You can read the text and discern that. Was he concerned about following God with all of his heart and only living out his purpose? No. He was a failure at that. And that's why God removed him. Notice it tells you what it is to be after God's heart. It's a good question to ask. Am I after God's heart this morning? If you are, you'll do his will. The Bible does not let you separate those two things. I found a man after my own heart who will do all my will.
agree. I'll tell you this. Guys, males, listen to me. We need more men like that. We need more men in the church who all they care about is doing God's will, being after God's heart. Ladies, be honest and let them know it. When all your men care about is doing God's will and running after his heart, that's hot. Yes? There you go. You listen to your wife? Okay, make sure. Well, be careful. Adam did. Anyway, moving on. Just kidding. Oh, just kidding. It's a joke. It's true. It's true. If you're after God's will and that's all you care about, if that's all your heart longs for, I just want what God wants. You don't know how much security and confidence that brings over a marriage and relationship. You don't know how much confidence that instills in children. Found a man all he wanted. Because all he's ever wanted is me as a poor shepherd out in the middle of nowhere, having to fight bears and lions. Oh my. I'm going to take him and I'm going to bring him into the palace and he's going to shepherd my people. Notice it's all surrounded about royalty and the devotion towards the Creator. Watch what he does. Verse 23 From the descendants of this man, from David, he hangs on that particularly for a reason. Back when it says he chose the people, when is that? That's Genesis 12, Abraham, okay? But now, the descendants from this man, look what it says. According to, what's the word? Promise. According to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, wow, he just took six verses and brought you to Jesus. And he used the history of Israel to do it. And he did it based on the jumping point of promises made to David who was after his own heart, who survived in the kingly realm of God's plan. This is cool stuff. Let me give you a reason why. If you like to take notes, just jot this down to the side. But PJ, if we could bring up Jeremiah 23. Let's look up on the screen with me. Let's read. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Old Testament prophecy about the coming of a Savior rooted out of promises that God made to a man named David. Notice it all falls in the idea of a kingly line. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, we won't be looking back on his deliverance from bondage anymore. What's the next verse say? Verse 8. But as Yahweh lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the northland and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. Do you guys realize that this verse right here is predictive of right now? Lick your finger and hold it to the wind and pay attention to Israel. Jews are flocking back there in droves, coming back into the land. The stage is getting set, guys. The fulfillment of the Messiah returning to take 
his rightful throne. We're on the threshold of that in time. Never thought I'd live to see it in my time. Guess what? We're almost there. And it's all in his timing. What is he doing here in the Old Testament? What is Jeremiah doing? He's promising a Savior, a Deliverer, specifically to the audience of Israel. Why do you think Paul wants to bring up this idea? Look what he says. God has brought to Israel as a Savior. Verse 24. Now watch this. He then goes into recent events. Now here's what's cool about this. Paul was around when the ministry of John the Baptist took place, but he wasn't a believer when John the Baptist was doing it. So he had done some recent research, had some history lined out, and had become knowledgeable about the situation. Verse 24, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And if you remember, what was his message? Make straight the paths of the Lord. Why? So that when the Messiah shows up, you don't miss your promised Savior. Don't want you to miss it. So John was getting people ready. Now watch what happens. Verse 25, and while John was completing his course, while he was dis, 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 I don't even have a good word for that. When he was doing his ministry to the full, everything that God gave him to do, he was completing. When he was bringing this out, notice it says here, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now that's a good one. And look what he does. Verse 26, brethren. Now notice brethren here. He's not saying Christian brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, kind of thing like that. He's talking about ethnic brethren. Those in the room of a synagogue. Why did he start there? Here's a question. Do the people know about Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel? Yeah, they read them every week. They would often come to the synagogue, and these are the readings that would be passed around. Something from the law, something from the prophets, something from the poetic books. Let's hear this. Let's have this regular gathering that we do. You guys know this story. He started with people that he already understood had a background in who God is and what God has done what he's promised. And because they were familiar with the promises, he wants to connect this and make a beeline to Jesus to show the promises of God are fulfilled in a person. They're fulfilled in the Messiah. Now watch 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, there's your A group, and those among you who fear God, remember them? That's our B group, the proselytes. Now why does he bring up Abraham's family? What's the covenant? Behold, Abraham, I'll give to you what? Land, seed, blessing. Through you will become a blessing to the entire world. And those who bless you, I will bless them. And those who curse you, I will curse them. He brings up Abraham for a reason, to jolt their minds. Notice what he says, you who fear God. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. Now here's what's crazy about this time period that Paul's talking about. Number one, it shows us a dispensational distinction. Previously, the, the idea of the Savior wasn't available. Everybody knows that Abraham in the Old Testament, he didn't believe in Jesus and was saved, right? Everybody understand that? He didn't know Jesus' name at that time. If he did, he would have called him Yeshua, like any good Hebrew would have done. So the name Jesus wasn't even on the radar. But what he's saying here is that God has given stewardships of time and has brought history to a fulfillment where he's now unfolding the full manifestation 
of our Savior. For those who were sensitive to the Spirit at that time and saw Jesus crucified and three days later raised from the grave, their senses would have been on overload because all of these Old Testament passages would have been flying through their ears. Good grief. Gambling for his clothes. Got that one there. None of his bones are going to be broken. Got that there. He will be a spotless lamb that is sacrificed for the people. Got that there. Didn't Jesus even say, just as Job, or sorry, just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be? And everybody went, God, he's crazy. Or he's going to resurrect. Nobody thought of that solution. But all of it projected, all of their history. Here's what he's saying, guys. In the synagogue, all of your history has pointed to this one man. All of it. And I'm here to tell you who he is, and I'm here to tell you what he's done. So notice, this message of salvation has been sent. Now, there's an interesting point about why this is the way that it is. If you want to write it down, great. 1 Corinthians 2. If you wouldn't mind to go there, PJ, should be the next one on the line. Watch this. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He says, yet we do, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. He comes in and he says, my message is really basic with everybody. It's Christ and Him crucified. I am teaching basic salvation truths. But that's not to say that the deeper that you probe into the cross, you don't find a wellspring of things that have been done for you. At least 40 things that we know of and a ridiculous amount that pour out of the fact that Jesus has died and raised from the grave. So as we grow in our faith, we learn more because of the maturity we have about the depths of everything that the cross has affected. This is why sometimes the cross doesn't put much of a dent on people who have a pagan mindset or unbelievers. The reason is is because they don't understand the depths of it. Now watch this profound thought by Paul. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, those who have grown. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. What's that? Bringing about this plan of salvation at the appointed time that God wanted it to take place in history. Let's go to the next one. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Presidents, prime ministers, cabinet members, Congress, House of Representatives, they don't understand it. Why? For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Think about what he's saying there. If the Sanhedrin had for a minute suspected that Jesus was the Messiah, they wouldn't have dared laid their hands on him because he's the anointed one of God himself. He is the Son of God. He wasn't blaspheming. If that knowledge would have been so, notice it's almost like Paul's giving you a view into an alternate reality. Another dimension that could have took place, all you Star Trek geeks out there, ooh, right? Bible's got something to say about it. If they would have known who they were dealing with, they wouldn't have killed him. But because they were ignorant of the fact, they put him to death like a common criminal, and in doing so, they ended up fulfilling prophecy so that salvation could be made available to the world. Watch how he moves back to this. You're back in Acts. You didn't have to turn there. Back in Acts, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, that's the Old Testament, which was read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Now, it's ironic that he decides to bring this up because he's standing in a synagogue where they would be reading these things every week. And he's saying, here's what he's saying. It's kind of what you guys are doing to me right now. Even though he's talking about Jesus' things, you all might not have Jesus' ears. 
you might be dull of hearing the gospel message. Oh, is he talking about this again? Yes, it's all I want to talk about. And it's all that Paul wants to talk about. And if we've become insensitive to the cross, then we're going to not going to notice when these spiritual things unfold. Am I coming against you? No. My desire is to wake you up. And to say we live in incredible times now of which the promises of the Messiah are going to be fulfilled. I can see it. I can taste it. Can you? Or are you not for sure what that might taste like? The question to answer. Notice, if they would have been aware of this, they would not have killed him. Verse 28, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, even though it was public knowledge that he was innocent. Look what it says about him. They asked Pilate that he be executed. I find nothing wrong with this man, so I'm going to wash my hands in front of everybody so they know that I wasn't in on this. Well, let's kill him anyway, even though you can't find anything wrong. What kind of hard heart does that have to have? in order to bring that about. So now here's what I love. Notice he just dealt with the idea of crucifixion. Verse 29, when they carried out all that was written concerning him, in other words, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. If you want those, come talk to me. i got a whole list of them here on the side of my Bible. Okay? It says here, uh, when they, all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Now, imagine that you're a Jewish person with this Old Testament background of I need to keep the law and try to be a good person, and when I mess up, I've got to go find a turtle dove, and we've got to sacrifice that, and blood's everywhere, and I'm imagine all that. Here's how God decided to do it. He killed a lamb that was perfect for everyone, and then raised him from the dead. Why? Because he's got stuff for him to do. Because you can't keep God dead. Because you can't take him out. Imagine hearing that for the first time. We've heard about the resurrection so much, it's lost its luster. Somebody who was dead, raised from the grave. There's no way it could have been. Really. Because you know? Because you were there? Tell me. You see what I'm saying? This had to be groundbreaking news for them. Wait, what? What is he saying? Everybody probably leaned in just a few inches more when Paul was talking. He says, verse 31, And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. In fact, we know about this in Matthew 28, largest gathering of people who saw him resurrected. Over 500 people at one time. And what did he tell him? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's the event that we're talking about here. He says, verse 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is a big deal because of the ramifications that surround it. Anybody ever thought it's weird that God says, Today I have begotten you, and Jesus is supposed to be God and therefore eternal and not have a created being. And so, how does all that work out? Anybody got spaghetti brain from the Trinity at all? How in the world does that work out? I'm glad you asked. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 5. If you would, please, put your finger here. You got one of these fun little strings they like to put on your Bible. Just lace it right on through there and turn to Hebrews 5 with me real quick. Hebrews 5. 
Why is it important that Paul brings up this idea from Psalm 2 of, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, sonship is a big deal in Jewish culture. The idea that you would be the son of God is even a more profound thought that would have been rolling around there. But the reason why you raise someone from the dead is because you're not done with them. Hebrews chapter 5. And look at verse 4. And real quick, let me set the stage for you so you get the background. The writer of Hebrews is trying to talk about how Jesus is a greater high priest than any earthly high priest they could have had through Aaron's line in Israel. And in verse 4, he says something very interesting. And no one takes the honor to himself. No one takes the honor of high priest on himself. Give it to me. Give it to me. Look, I've earned it. I'm going to campaign for it or something like that. That's not how you get it. He says here, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now watch this, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son. Look at this. Today I have what? I've begotten you. Does that mean he was born on that day? No. Notice that the begotten is the resurrection. Today I have raised you from the dead. Why is that? Because now he was raised. He died as Savior. He's now raised as a high priest. What does that mean? It means that somebody comes before God on our behalf and presents perfect blood and makes a sacrifice offering before him that says, these people are spotless, free, and clear. They're free to go. God says, because I've seen perfect blood cover a billion sins of all the people. They're free to go. Now, why I didn't get an amen from that, I don't understand. Job. Do you realize that Jesus has set you free? This is what Paul's getting at. Paul is going to get the idea that he has actually raised up a better high priest than they would settle for under the law, who walks into the presence of God one time, offers his own blood before God, and says, to all who the blood is applied, they're spotless. It has washed them as white as snow. We can appreciate that in Wisconsin. It is taking care of everything that served as a barrier to the Almighty. Think about this. Are you plagued with constant guilt over actions of the past? Do you have shame for something you've done and you sit there and you quiver sometimes in your own thoughts and you think, good grief, if anybody knew about that, it would just destroy me. You ever sat there and allowed for Satan to take his little shovel and dig up your sins? Kind of just casually cast them into your face. Almost like you could feel the dirt smacking against you. Has that ever been you? Surely not, right? Do you realize that when Jesus died, he died for all sin of all time that any person would ever commit, past, present, and future? And not only that, but he took guilt on one side and shame on the other side and said, give me those. I'll deal with it perfectly. I'll tell you this morning, if you have guilt over something that you've done in the past, it's not from God. 
It is the adversary of God trying to get your eyes off of God so that you will be ineffective for God. Why? Because I'm not worthy to serve him. Guess what? Not a single person in this room is, most of all me. That doesn't change the nature of grace. That doesn't change the nature of the fact that because God wanted the transaction to be completed in full, he raised the Savior who died so that he could walk into the Holy of Holies in heaven and present his perfect sacrifice as an atonement, a complete satisfaction for every wrongdoing that's ever been spoken, thought, or conceived in the heart. Gone. Free people. Finished. That's out of this world, literally. That's amazing to think that God would want to do that for me. Have we gotten dull of hearing the gospel? This is the only thing that Paul wanted to bring to them. He knew he needed to set the stage. He knew he needed to unfold the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Go back to your bookmarks and let's finish this out. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this promise to our children that he raised up Jesus. There's the resurrection as it's written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I've begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now, you may not put this together immediately, but here's what he's saying here. In order for the promise about having a descendant who's a king on the throne, to be fulfilled, God had to raise Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can fulfill that. Dead people don't fulfill obligations. You don't write speeding tickets to corpses. It doesn't happen. So he raises him from the dead. Why? So that he can be the fulfiller of these things. So not only is he a high priest on your behalf, he's also a king that is on deck waiting to rule. Notice the next part here. Verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In other words, because he lives from the grave, he is able to make sacrifice for you or to present sacrifice for you, and he's able to reign as your king in setting the stage for his coming. Verse 36, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Therefore, David couldn't have been talking about himself. but he whom God raised from the dead did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, who died for your sins and God has raised him from the grave to be the priest king on everyone's behalf, through him, look what happens, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who behaves and is a good person for the rest of their life is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Here's what I love. Paul is straight on the gospel. It's not about you being a better person. It's not about you trying harder the fourth time. It's not about any sort of modification you could possibly do to your behavior whatsoever. And it's not about any commitments that you would try to make to God about how things are going to go in an upward direction. We cannot do that. We have no power to do that. In fact, I would say that if we've noticed anything about life, it are the times that we've tried to do our best that we actually end up doing our worst. That ever been you? That ever been you? I'm never going to be that kind of driver again. 
You giggle because you know that's you. And if you see me around town, you know it's me. God does what we could never do through His Son. Notice that it's one thing and one thing only, believing. Here's the question you ask. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and risen from the grave? You answer that question with the affirmative. Yes, I believe that. You now have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, 15 million other things that we can't even lay hold of, can't even grasp. They're all freely yours. Why? Because God's a gracious giver and He loves you in spite of you. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Look what he says here. Verse 39, through him everyone who believes is freed from all things. If you look at your marginal note, justified. You're declared righteous from all things. God looks at you and all he sees is spotless perfection because he sees you in Jesus from all things. Well, what was the problem there? Well, for these Jews, look, from which you could not be justified, freed through the law of Moses. Man, you tried to keep the greatest grocery list you could ever do of your own works. Guess what? Not one time were you justified before God by doing that. Jesus comes in and does the work for you and offers it to you freely if you simply believe him for it. Fantastic. You're now in his presence forever, never to be lost. That's where it's at. Now, that's some good evangelism. That's a really good opportunity of exhortation, taking the wide open door, giving them a little history lesson, and then unfolding the significance of the Messiah in light of who they are. Now, here's an interesting thing that we never do in our evangelism that we should do because obviously it's biblical. Watch this, verse 40. Therefore, take heed. You ever said something like that to somebody? Is there anything that's keeping you from trusting in Jesus right now as your Savior? If there is, take heed. How would that conversation go? Probably wouldn't like it much, would we? Therefore, take heed. Why? So that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Is Paul out to win people and influence friends? And No, he's not. In fact, let me say it to you this way, what I noticed from this. Sometimes we have to tell people the things that they don't want to hear because we love them so much. They're just not in a place to hear it. Now, that's got to be true. Otherwise, we would never share the gospel. Lost people are rarely ever. Can somebody please share with me the gospel? That's the wide open door. But otherwise, we would never seek to make the effort. We would never be looking for the lost because we're too busy. I don't want to offend them. I'll tell you this. If you're telling them the gospel, you're the last thing that's offended them. They've probably been offended already and it's carrying old. If that was the case, we would never have the heart-to-heart talks with people about the things that are going wrong in their lives. We would never open up and disclose sins in our lives and things that we need prayer for, just as we're commanded to do in the Scripture. Sometimes you've got to talk to people about things they don't want to hear. Now notice that Paul is warning them. What is written of in the prophets will come upon you if you reject Christ. You know what? It doesn't sound very loving. I promise you it is. What does John say in John 3.18? Do we know? We know John 3.16, don't we? What's 3.18? You don't believe, you're what? Anybody know? Condemned already. Condemned already. Because you have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Well, we really like 16, but we don't like 18. In the same chapter. You got to like them. Same person speaking it. Same person's trying to tell us the truth. There are grave consequences for rejecting Jesus. He says here, verse 41 Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone would describe it to you. In other words, you're so sophisticated 
or hard-hearted of mind or hard-hearted of head. Sometimes it's head-hearted, right? Is that even a word? I don't think it is. But you're with me, right? Maybe not. You're just obstinate to the gospel. I don't need it. Well, I'll wait till I see things get really bad, and then I'll trust in Jesus. Wake up. Wake up. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them in the next Sabbath. There's every preacher's dream right there. Tell me more. Great. We'll be back next week. Look what it says here. Verse 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, they had responded by believing in Jesus. And in doing so, now the message was, keep going in grace. Keep growing in grace. Keep moving forward graciously. That's what Christ was about. Bow your head up, please. Only two people know your current spiritual situation. You and God. God sees all. If you're here today and you are not a believer in Christ, you can't hide that. He knows. Jesus Christ has died for your sins and risen from the grave and has promised to return so that you will be with them all. This is a hope that is beyond anything that this world can offer. This is a hope that is offered to everyone who will receive it. You've never come to that moment where you have believed in Christ, where you've trusted Him and said, there's no way I'm making it on my own. Hell is a certain destination for me. Today is a day of salvation. And maybe you've been told, well, you need to walk the aisle, you need to join the church, you need to pray a prayer. None of those things are biblical ever. What we do need to do is believe in Jesus Christ alone. He is the Savior. He was the innocent one who died on the cross for the sins of every person. He's the only one who offers that forgiveness of sin to everyone who believes. He's the only one who gives eternal life. No one else does. Maybe today you are in unbelief and you're thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I would ask you to take heed because what was spoken in the prophets may come upon you. Though you may be a scoffer, you will die. That is the hard fact of it. No one escapes death. The question is, what occurs afterwards? Do you have confidence about that? If hell is what you look forward to, then you don't understand hell. But knowing that God freely offers His Son because He extends a hand of mercy to us, you can't put a price tag on that. You can't buy that. And I guarantee you when you look for the 11th hour, it will undertake you so quick you won't know what to do. Today is the day of salvation. Believe in Christ. Believe in Him alone. 
Father, I pray the Spirit would do the work that He does on our hearts in regard to sin, righteousness, judgment. If we are people here who have seen open doors and neglected the opportunity to be soul winners, Father, there's not a greater call that we could possibly have. Lord, move us by your love. Move us by your spirit. Help us to see the lost with your eyes. That we would love them and be moved to compassion with them and plead with them about the free offer of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray this.